Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Bill Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 163 of Reclaiming the Faith, and today we're going to take a look at an obscure passage, Zechariah chapter 5, Zechariah's Temple of Doom. You know, I really should have put this in my book, but I didn't really see it until the day after the book went live to be purchased. So, uh, yeah, so this is a podcast form of what is eventually going to be an additional chapter to my previous book, The Final Abominable Temple. So it'll be a little bit more conversational here and then uh, much more in-depth and uh, precise when the updated version of the book comes out at some point in the future. But you can get The Final Abominable Temple in paperback, hardback, audio, Kindle form on Amazon or pretty much anywhere that you can buy books. It's there. And if it's been a blessing to you, please consider leaving a a positive rating and review there. That would really be cool. That would be a blessing to me. Also, if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And as promised, in the next episode of Reclaiming the Faith, my wife and I are going to get into our series on 1 Thessalonians, and we'll start that by laying a foundation in Acts 17. So be on the lookout for that. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find links to all of our content on omegafrequency.com, or you can check out our YouTube and Rumble pages. So go check those out. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 163. So this is a little bit embarrassing for me, but about a day after I published my new book, The Final Abominable Temple, I discovered numerous connections between 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 5. Now, I quote Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, numerous times uh, throughout the book and how these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. But I don't describe how uh, how those prophecies from Zechariah would be used by the Antichrist to try to prove to the world, and particularly the elect, that he is the Christ. Also, there is this weird passage, Zechariah chapter 5, that commentators just don't really know what to do with. For instance, one of the nerdiest and best commentary sets that you can buy is called the Word Biblical Commentary. It's fantastic. I mean, it goes deep word by word uh, through every word of the Bible. And yet, for the commentary on Zechariah, the entire chapter, chapter 5, only two pages are devoted to this chapter, and there are very few breakdowns of words that happen there. But if you compare the subject, the main theme of Zechariah, and several words from Zechariah, chapter 5, with 2 Thessalonians 2, your mind will probably be blown like mine was. Uh, It's one of those things where you don't see, like a Where's Waldo thing, where you just don't see it, you don't see it, but once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. 
That's how it was for me, at least. And I hope it's like that for you. I'm probably going to have to do a, an uh, second edition, I guess, of uh, or an updated edition of my book at some point uh, in the future. But for right now, I'm going to give you what would have been an entire chapter, basically. I'm going to give that to you for free here in podcast form. Now, because it's in podcast form, uh, it's not going to be as polished sounding as uh, the book. It's going to be a little bit more off the cuff, uh, a little bit more conversational. So you're just going to have to bear with me in that regard. But let's go ahead and get into it. As I mentioned in my book, if you really want to understand the book of Zechariah's historical context, you have to start with the book of Haggai, which is all about the people being called by God, commanded by God to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. You remember in 586, the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army. Then the people were sent into exile for 70 years. They are allowed to come back after those 70 years by uh, King Cyrus and, and Darius, the uh, Persians and the Medes, right? Medes and the Persians. And um, so then the people came back, but they were not, they, they laid the foundation, but then they got distracted uh, and they got disheartened uh, by different issues. Um, and then God comes to them and he's like, hey, y'all have spent too much time working on your own houses when you should be finishing this house. So God calls people like uh, Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judea at the time, and Joshua, who is the high priest, and Haggai to inspire the people to get to work and finish God's house. Then you come to the book of Zechariah, and the same characters are there outside of Haggai. Instead of Haggai, now you have Zechariah, their contemporaries. And you see, though, in the book of Zechariah, some of the themes that are carried about continued from a certain prophecy of the second chapter of Haggai, which is that the, this new temple, the latter temple, the one that should be built, will be more glorious than the former temple, Solomon's temple. Now, in Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, the one that would eventually be finished by Herod, there was no Ark of the Covenant. So how could this latter temple be more glorious than the former temple, Solomon's temple? How can you even do the Day of Atonement? And as you start going through the book of Zechariah, you start realizing Zerubbabel's temple could not be a fulfillment of these prophecies. And you definitely start understanding that when you fast forward several hundred years and you get to 70 AD when Titus destroys the temple in Jerusalem, that second temple. And so you're left with a choice if you're a Jew. Did Jesus, who claimed to be the temple of the Lord and even the one who rebuilt that temple of the Lord with his resurrection, did he fulfill these prophecies in Zechariah? Or were those prophecies that seemed to be about that second temple, about a future temple to come when the Messiah will himself and God uh, rebuild the temple? Okay, now in these prophecies, in Zechariah, it talks about God himself being in the city, God himself dwelling there, 
God himself helping to rebuild the the temple, or it's Joshua who is a high priest, but he also is a king. We're going to get into all this stuff. So to kind of help continue to set the stage, what I want to do is read an article from the Chabad.org website, um, which is one of the strictest versions of modern-day Judaism. The name of the article is, What is the Jewish Belief About the Mashiach, Messiah? Okay, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and you can read some of this. So I'm pulling from several different uh, aspects of that article. So this is what some of the strictest Jews today believe uh, we should be looking for in the what they believe is the coming Messiah. Okay, so, quote, any potential Mashiach, Messiah, must be a direct descendant of King David, as well as an erudite in Torah learning. So they have to be a descendant of David, and they have to be just unbelievably amazing in being able to uh, school people in the Torah, right? If this individual actually succeeds in rebuilding the temple— and gathering in the exiles, then he is the Mashiach, okay? So the person has to rebuild the temple, and there's this big in-gathering, okay? Gathering in those who have been scattered, okay? Keep that in mind. Continuing, according to some traditions, God himself will rebuild the third temple. According to others, it will be rebuilt by Mashiach. Still others suggest a combination of the two opinions. So that's because there's this weird character, the branch, we're going to get into, um, but it's also God who's doing it. It's, I'm going to be in the midst, God says. It's the branch figure. It's this priest-king figure. Is it, who is it? Is it God? Is it the Messiah? Who is this God-Messiah person who's going to rebuild the temple and take away the iniquity of the land in one day, this stuff. Okay, let's continue. What can be done to bring in Mashiach? In general, mankind must strive to perform more acts of goodness and kindness. The Jew is mandated to learn and be aware of the messianic redemption and to strengthen his or her faith in Mashiach's ultimate and imminent arrival. Charity is a catalyst for redemption. And every day in our prayers, we sincerely plead many times for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the ingathering of the exiles, and the return to Torah observance under the leadership of Mashiach. So let's start from chapter one. What are some Zechariah passages the Antichrist could use? to prove, quote-unquote prove, he is the real Messiah. Well, here's Zechariah chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now you caught some of how this prophecy uh, they believe will be fulfilled by the last little paragraph, the last little section I read to you from that uh, Chabad article, where they're talking about doing acts of charity, doing acts of um, 
prayer. Uh, they're talking about doing good deeds all around, praying for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, praying or the rebuilding of the, the Jerusalem temple, praying for the exile's return, praying for a stricter Torah observance, right? Return to uh, God, return to the Lord, and the Lord will return to you. The Mashiach will come. All right, let's keep going. What about Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16? Thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion, and my house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is how, you know, Kabad is saying that the Lord is going to rebuild the temple. He's going to build this house. So whoever builds this temple is the Mashiach, and maybe he's the Lord also. Here's Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So remember, they talked about all of the exiles will be brought in. Now, that could be Jews that have been exiled, but it's interesting when you look at what Revelation 13 says about how all the nations of the world are going to be worshiping the beast. So is Zechariah 2 going to be used by the Antichrist to say, look, all of these people who were not my people are going to be called my people. They will become my people when I, the Lord, dwell in your midst. And I'm going to possess Judah and will again choose Jerusalem. So this Antichrist is making Jerusalem his portion. Now, earlier in Zechariah 2, a passage that I sorry, I just skipped over, is how God says that he's going to be a wall of fire around Jerusalem. So he's going to be protecting Jerusalem. He will be her glory in her midst. So think about how all of these nations are trying to, in the book of Revelation and in Daniel, they're trying to make war on the beast, but no one can wage war against him. Who can war against the beast, right? So he is, he is defending his people, right? And he's doing it successfully for quite a while. Let's move on to Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch, for behold, the stone I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So could the Antichrist, why does he stop the daily sacrifice in the book of Daniel? Is it because then he declares himself to be God in God's temple? Is, is he at that point saying there's no more need 
to uh, have sacrifices because I can forgive you? It sounds like perhaps he's saying he's now the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Now, that's something that Jesus actually is, right? Well, let's build on that a little bit more with Zechariah chapter 6. Let's go start in verse 11. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So, you have God who's going to build the temple, and yet you also have this high priest king who's going to sit, who's going to build the temple of the Lord and sit on the throne in the temple of the Lord. And there's going to be peace between the two offices, a eternal king priest. Now that's interesting, right? Because again, as a, as a Jew, you are forced in, in, in Jesus's day, you are forced to look at Jesus and say, is he the Messiah or not? Is he the Messiah or not? Because if he is, then we don't have a need for the temple anymore. And then the temple's destroyed. And then you really have to think, was Jesus the Messiah? Because if he is, we really don't need this stuff anymore. That Those prophecies are fulfilled. But then if you reject that, then you have to look at those prophecies and say, well, they weren't fulfilled when God said they're, maybe they're going to be fulfilled again. And now you have room for this false Messiah to come in, this false Christ to come in and attempt to um, persuade the people that through these prophecies that he's the true Messiah. And so you see uh, the Christians quote Another passage where the two offices are put together, the office of king and priest are put together, it's Psalm 110. It's the most quoted psalm uh, by, the, by the Christians in the New Testament, the New Testament authors. It puts together the office of uh, king and priest forever. So check this out. This is Psalm, 10, psalm 110, starting in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so he's going to be king and priest. Now here he says he's priest forever. Now what about king forever? Well, remember this throne of David stuff, right? Look at Isaiah 9, starting in verse 6. Now this is a passage that you hear quite a bit generally every Christmas, right? It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And just imagine, as this false Christ is fulfilling seemingly, seemingly, all of these prophecies. Think about what we're expecting Jesus to do in the second coming, and this guy is doing it all before the people. Well, Jesus actually fulfilled these things, right? He actually rebuilt the temple of the Lord, just like he talked about in John chapter 2, destroyed this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. All right. So what I want to do now is I want to start moving toward this Zechariah 5 passage. But again, let's just do a little bit of uh, foundational work, okay? So do a little bit of context. So in Zechariah chapter 4, you have these weird uh, olive trees and lampstands that kind of uh, replenish themselves somehow. It's, it's, it's a really strange vision. And toward the end of that vision in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Then I said to him, so this angel that's showing him the vision, I said, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time, and I said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, if you've read your Bible all the way through, that passage should immediately be ringing alarm bells, right? Because that passage is quoted almost verbatim in Revelation chapter 11. So let's start in verse 3, and we're going to read all the way to verse 8, okay? John writes, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, 
The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, where is that? That last phrase where their Lord was crucified is obviously Jerusalem. Now, we know Jerusalem is called Sodom in the book of Ezekiel. It is not called Egypt anywhere in the Bible that we can see, um, but definitely that last, that last phrase, where the Lord was crucified, lets us know that the great city is Jerusalem. Now, what is the capital city of the beast's kingdom in the last days? Well, at this point in history, at the point of Revelation 11, it seems to be Jerusalem, again, the great city. Remember, the Antichrist is trying to convince the elect that he is the Messiah. And if you read all those prophecies in Zechariah that he is trying to fulfill. If you remember that all of those lines from the Chabad website, they believe the capital city of the world is going to be Jerusalem. That's who they are looking for. That's what they believe the Messiah is going to do. And anyone who doesn't do that, who's not making Jerusalem the capital city of the world, they're not going to believe that's the Messiah. They're going to reject someone like that. That's who they're looking for. All right. Now, that phrase, the great city, comes up later in Revelation chapter 16. So let's start. It's, it's in verse 19, but let's start with verse 17, okay? So Revelation 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So here we see the great city, which Revelation 11 told us was Jerusalem, and Babylon the great being paired together. Moving on to the next chapter, Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 3, we see John write, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. 
The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Well, who is that woman? Verse 18, the woman you saw, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, what city is ruling over the kings of the earth in the last days? To a Jew, that would be Jerusalem. Let's go on to uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. Now, this says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her, to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived in and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. Now that is coming right out of uh, Isaiah chapter 47. And in this, you see the destruction of Babylon. Now, Babylon is this great city, and it is calling itself a queen. So if there's a queen of Babylon, who is the king of Babylon? Well, you also see Babylon's destruction in Isaiah 13, and it happens at the day of the Lord. Babylon is plunged into darkness, right? And you, uh, you see that as well in Revelation 18. Uh, sorry, Revelation 16. It's plunged into darkness. But I digress. Let's come back. So the, the queen of Babylon is this great city which rules over the kings of the earth, which would appear to be Jerusalem. Well, who's the king of Babylon? Isaiah 13, you have Babylon's destruction, eschatological Babylon's destruction, never to rise again. Isaiah 14, you have a taunt taken up against the, in verse 4, king of Babylon. Go to verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, just like Jesus declared himself to be God in God's temple in John 2 and John 7, and he declared he would again be God's himself to be God in God's temple after or at Pentecost from John 14, he said that would happen. 
Well, Paul says the Antichrist, the king of Babylon, will attempt to do the same thing in the last days in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, let's get into this. In, in my book, I talked about how Paul is very much uh, depending on Matthew chapter 24. He is depending heavily on the book of Daniel. But what I did not see until now is that he is absolutely pulling from the book of Zechariah, particularly Zechariah 5. But in setting it up, he's pulling from the main theme of Zechariah. All right. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to highlight uh, four Greek words for you. Now, I say Greek, and the reason for that is because when we get to Zechariah 5 at the end, I'm going to highlight those words from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which I believe Paul is leaning on, okay? So here we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Let's pause for a second. What is the main idea of Zechariah? That the Lord is coming to dwell amongst his people and he's going to gather his people to himself. That's like the main theme. So let's keep going. Okay. So we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's anomia, is revealed. Let's pause there for a second. Anomia means lawlessness. And this person is called the man of lawlessness, but lawlessness here is in the feminine. Later, this person will be talked about and lawlessness will be in a masculine use. So it could seem that this is a person, a man who comes out of this feminine embodiment of lawlessness. Just kind of keep that in mind. It kind of seems you could, you could say that this man of lawlessness comes out of a woman of lawlessness in a sense, like comes out of the Revelation 17 or of Babylon. He's of her. He's of lawlessness, this woman lawlessness. Anyway, let's keep moving. All right, so this, one, this man of lawlessness from lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, anomia, so there's this weird mystery of lawlessness, is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, now here it's not anomia, it's anomos, will be revealed. So that man lawless lawlessness will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth to bring an end by the appearance of his coming. So you have these two comings. You have uh, the coming of the lawless one who's claiming to be the claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah. But then you have the real coming of the Lord. And when he comes, he slays the lawless one. The Lord puts an end to him. He slays the lawless one with the breath of his mouth at the appearance of his coming. That is, now he's talking about the Antichrist again, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false, this is pseudo, wonders, false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness, now this is the term adikios for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is pseudo, what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in adakia, in wickedness. So these people that are delighting in falsehood, these people that are delighting in wickedness, in pseudo, in adakia, have this poured out, have those same two things poured out on them. Think about what uh, happened at the judgment of Babylon in Revelation 18. Do you remember that? As she has done to others, let it be done double to her. Hmm. Now, let's go to Zechariah 5, and let's remember these terms, okay? Remember, we had anomia, we had uh, pseudo, we had adakia, and we will bring in one more term in there at the end, okay? Again, anomia, which is lawlessness, pseudo, which is false, and adakia, or adakias, which is wickedness. All right, so let's get into Zechariah 5. Then I lifted up my eyes again, and I looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. Let's pause right there. So this scroll is about the the size of a billboard that you would see on the side of the freeway in Houston. Just an enormous, enormous scroll. Continuing verse uh, 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the whole, over the face of the whole land. Surely, everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, 
It will enter the house, this is oikon, of the thief and the house, oikon, on every of the one who swears falsely, that is, pseudos, by my name. And it will spend the night within that house, oiku, it's another version of house, oikon, and consume it with its timber and stones. All right, so you have this scroll written on front and back, which is enormous. It's an enormous scroll. So uh, it's written on front and back, kind of like the Ten Commandments. And it is a, it's declaring a curse. It's like a curse scroll. So everyone who doesn't obey these things is, this curse is going to enter their house and, and destroy the person. Okay. Now, uh, the people with whom it is going to destroy, the people whom it's going to destroy are those who first lie. They use deception, uh, particularly using God's name to deceive, but it's, it's lying, swearing falsely by God's name and people who steal. Okay. Now keep that in mind. And then it uses the word oikos, uh, or oikon three times. Now the word oikon can uh, mean a household or oikos or oikodome. It's used several times to mean house, temple, oi, uh, household, these kind of ideas. Oikodome is used in Ephesians chapter 2, and I talk about that in the book, verse 221, where Paul says, we are the oikodome of God. And then he clarifies by saying, God is making us his hagion now on. We're the building of God. In fact, what kind of building is it? God is making us his holy temple. Okay? What kind of building? We are this holy temple of God for God to dwell in. Now, then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, Paul says he's been talking about putting on our new self, which has been made in the likeness of God. Okay, and then in starting in verse 25, Ephesians 4.25, he says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin, nor let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give didote, that means to like uh, offer someone, do not offer the devil an opportunity, which is tapon. Or place. Now that word top on can mean a, a place of standing. It can also mean a dwelling place, right? And that's the way that Jesus uses it in John 14. In my father's room, in my father's house are many top ons, dwelling places. Okay. So the way this is, is used often is uh, it's been explained to me. It's like giving the devil the keys to your house, offering this thief keys to your house. That's that's not good. You know, bad things are going to happen if you do that. Okay. Then Paul continues. He says, he who steals must steal no longer. So you have falsehood giving the devil a, like lying, then this anger toward the brother, but then stealing. Okay. Paul says, these are things that we have to avoid lying and stealing combined with, with anger, right? Toward our brother gives the devil an opportunity to come into our house. Hmm. Lying, stealing, 
letting the, the embodiment of the curse into our household. Interesting. Let's continue because you're going to see those things again when we, when we uh, remember 2 Thessalonians. But I just wanted to bring in that Ephesians passage because it seems like Paul had Zechariah 5 in mind there. But let's continue. So we've had that curse scroll, curse scroll go through the land. He says, I'm going to wipe out all the liars and the thieves, right, with this curse. Zechariah 5.5. 5. They're going to go into the houses, right? Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah, which is like a measuring basket, a basket that can measure like five gallons worth of some kind of substance. And he said, this is their appearance in all the land. Now, in the Septuagint, verse 6 does not say this is their appearance in all the land. That's from the Masoretic text. In the Septuagint, verse 6 reads very differently. So, Zechariah is like, what is this? I said, what is it? And the angel said, this is the measuring basket going forth. And he said, this is their adakia, their wickedness, their iniquity in all the earth. So in the Septuagint, the Bible that people like Paul and James and John and Peter and Jesus were reading, the Septuagint, the Bible of the common people, they used adakia. Okay, so there's this measuring basket going forth into all the earth, and it is the land's iniquity. All the iniquity, all of the wickedness of the land is going somewhere. Let's continue. Verse 7, And behold, a lead cover was lifted up over the basket. So iniquity is in, or the basket is iniquity, and a lead cover is lifted up from the basket, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. So there's a woman in there. That's interesting. And then he said, this is anomia. Now, that's lawlessness. Remember how uh, Paul used in 2 Thessalonians 2, the lawless one, anomos, in the masculine. But when he said, it is the man of lawlessness, it was in the feminine? Lawless was in the feminine? Hmm. This is wickedness. This woman is lawlessness. Is the man of lawlessness, not just someone who acts wickedly, but someone who is of this woman. This woman. Hmm. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. So this is interesting, okay? It seems like this wickedness, this woman who is called lawlessness, Anomia, is trying to get out. She's trying to get out of the basket, but she was cast back into the basket. There's a struggle going on. 
And you can see that in the language. Verse 9, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there are two women who are coming up with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. All right, so this woman is being carried about, and she's being restrained. This woman lawlessness is being restrained as she's being taken to her destination. And what is her destination? That's what Zechariah wants to know. That's what we want to know. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? That's verse 10. Verse 11. Then he said to me, to build a temple, an oikon, a house, for her in the land of Shinar. Now, the first time the phrase, the land of Shinar, is used is in Genesis chapter 10 where the writer of Genesis, the author of Genesis, Moses, is describing the kingdoms of Nimrod, right? He built all of these amazing cities, one of them being Babylon in the land of Shinar. And then in Genesis 11, you have the whole earth in rebellion toward God, because in Genesis 9, God gave Noah and his sons the same commission that he gave Adam, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to spread out, that the whole earth would be full of the knowledge of God, right? Well, what did they do? They did not spread out. They coalesced. They came together. They came together under one ruler in the land of Shinar, and why was to build a temple to make war against God under one king, Nimrod. Mm. Now, in verse 11, in the uh, verse 11 of Zechariah 5, in the Septuagint, it doesn't just say in the land of Shinar, it says in the land of Babylon. This temple, this house is going to be built for lawlessness, for the woman lawlessness. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal, basically to be worshiped. It's very interesting. So again, you have a woman that's lawlessness, (laughs) from Zechariah chapter 5, and then you have this man of the female version of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, and you have something restraining this lawlessness in both chapters, and you have uh, the people who have been committing pseudo-lies and wickedness, adikias, Something terrible happens to them in both chapters, right? In the Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter five, they are destroyed. And in Second Thessalonians 2, those who were have a curse poured out on them, a curse of wickedness and falsehood is poured out on them as they 
are deluded into following the king of Babylon, this, this false Christ who deceives them to become like what they worship, just like he goes to destruction, so do they. You have a temple in both passages, a temple for lawlessness in both chapters that is worshiped. This is just incredible. Once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. These passages in the Old Testament are critical. It is critical for you to know them because the lawless one is going to use these passages to try to prove to the world beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the Messiah when in fact he is the man of lawlessness. So in light of the thesis of this book, how should we look at the pairing of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 5? Well, basically, you have the true temple of God, Christians, who become a house for lawlessness. And you have a house built for lawlessness, which becomes known as the temple of God. What an amazing deception. Now, this is one of the main passages, Zechariah 5, that has convinced me that there will be a literal building that is constructed by the Antichrist, which is called the temple of God or the temple of the Lord. And so how should we think about a third temple? What should we think about a temple in Jerusalem that is constructed that is called the temple of the Lord? Well, you know, there is a group, a nonprofit organization called Bone Israel. That's B-O-N-E-H I-S-R-A-E-L. And that website is bonaisrael.com. They're a nonprofit organization that they say are they are focused on building up and reviving important biblical sites, bringing to bring the Bible to life and educating the nations about the past, present, and future of Israel, and actively bringing the redemption closer. Now, okay, the first part of that sounds great. But what do they mean by actively bringing the redemption closer? Well, this is a Christian organization. So they believe that they can do things to bring Jesus. But one of the things that they think will help bring Jesus is by first bringing the third temple about. So they are very involved in bringing about the construction of the third temple. And one of the things that they believe has to happen, and so does the Chabad group, is uh, having ashes of a red heifer. So last year, last September, five red heifers were brought from Israel to Texas, and Bone Israel were part of that process. And um, let me read to you what they say Uh, about these five red heifers, okay? They say, why search for a cow? These red heifers can bring world peace. The Bible teaches us that the key for building the third temple, the house of prayer for all the nations, is purifying us with the red heifer in Jerusalem. 
why would red heifers be able to bring the world peace when Paul says Jesus himself is our peace? He is the prince of peace. He has made peace between us and God forever, right? One sacrifice for all time. How could red heifers bring world peace? Well, if the third temple is rebuilt, the Antichrist will come and, according to Zechariah, bring peace. But then Jesus will come and kill the Antichrist and then set up true peace, right, for all times. And that's probably what these people are thinking. They're thinking, well, yes, the Antichrist does have to come, but then once that third temple is there and the Antichrist is there and Jesus defeats him, then we will truly have full peace for all Israel because, you know, doesn't Paul say all Israel will be saved? So, you know, the Israelites can't be deceived, but it seems like uh, if you read the Chabad articles, what they really believe, they are definitely already deceived because they have rejected Jesus and they are waiting for a man who is going to do what Christians believe the Antichrist is going to do. So it seems like Christians who are taking part in helping to build the temple of lawlessness are actually encouraging our Jewish friends to believe that the Antichrist is actually the real Christ and maybe even God himself. Now, is that a very pro-Semitic thing to do? Is it, is it pro-Semitic to help Jewish people think that the greatest villain of all time is the greatest hero of all time? You know, doesn't Revelation 13 talk about a mark being given to those who worship the Antichrist? Doesn't Revelation 14 talk about anyone who receives that mark, that seal, anyone who worships him and receives that seal, will burn forever in the lake of fire? Who's going to worship the Antichrist? Well, I can, I can think of some folks that would want to worship this guy as Lord, the people who have a doctrine claiming the person who rebuilds the temple is the Lord. It seems like one of the best things that we can do for our Jewish friends and neighbors is to show how these prophecies from Zechariah were fulfilled in Jesus, not in someone who is still to come. But there's also, according to Paul, and the way I understand it, a deception coming for the church. So similar to the way I ended my book in the epilogue, what can we do to make sure that uh, we do not fall into this great deception? Well, Paul says that deception is poured out by God on those who have not received the love of the truth. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's look at Paul's instruction to us to cling to the truth of who we are in Christ and what we must, how we must now live that out, and then we will close. All right, so this is Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. 
Paul writes, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you will walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you.
Oh